Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. People should be able to marry whomever they want. What I do in the privacy of my own bedroom doesn't concern you. These sorts of sentiments are heard very often in our culture for today. And certainly there are many political issues that are raised with the concept of the connection or lack of connection between a whole society and marriage practices. We're going through a series of exegetical studies in Malachi, and this focus means that we will not really have adequate time to wade into politics. However, while there are definitely differences between the situation in Malachi and our modern context, this same fundamental attitude could easily be seen in our text under discussion, Malachi 2.10 to 14a, where Malachi turns to a second major problem in his community, Yehud, uh, the problem of ungodly marriage unions. This second major unit has much in common with the first. Uh, Keep your eye out for them as I read our text, starting in verse 10. Do not all of us have one father? Did not one God create us? Why are we acting treacherously, a man with his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously, and an abomination is done in Israel and in Jerusalem, because Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loved, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Yahweh will cut off the man who does this, the one arising and answering from the tents of Jacob, even the one who brings an offering to Yahweh Sebaoth. And this second thing you do, you cover the altar of Yahweh with tears and weeping and groaning. He no longer turns attention to our gift to take what is pleasing from your hands. And you say, why? Because Yahweh witnessed between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have acted treacherously. Just like the priests were not taking their covenant with God seriously enough, neither were the people taking their covenants seriously enough. Here, uh, the marriage covenant, verse 14, and the effect is the same. In the first major section, we considered how the priest's failure meant that God wouldn't accept their offerings and that they would be cut off. So too, in the second major section, we find that the people's failure means that God would not accept their offerings and that they too would be cut off. And verses 13 and 12. In fact, the break in the units between verse 9 and verse 10 is really not too sharp. Verse 10 kind of functions like a hinge, describing the sin of breaking faith with a covenant before with the priests and then in the material following in marriage. Now, these similarities, as well as the order and thought flow of the text, show us an important lesson. People learn from their leaders. Spiritual leaders have a tremendous amount of responsibility because people will follow their leadership and very often their leadership in the example of their lives. So let's take a closer look at our text. This unit about the people's marriages at the very least extends through verse 16. However, due to the complications here, I've divided it up into two sections. Uh, Verses 10 to 14a describe the marital problems and then 14b onwards describe the original intention of marriage to show how they have deviated from God's pattern. Verse 10 starts off the unit by touching on the very issue I raised earlier, the national solidarity of the people. Israel's a family and so is connected in a web of relationships. 
The sin that he's about to describe violates or profanes the covenant of their fathers. There is damage done, reaching all the way back to their ancestors, because obviously this covenant is with God who created them, and also means they broke faith or acted treacherously with their own brothers. The text begins, do not all of us have one father? The later reference to covenant of our fathers, plural, it could suggest that Malachi has a human father in mind with do not all of us have one father, like the father Abraham. And the Bible does talk like this. Isaiah 51 verse 2, for example, says, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. However, though this is possible, it seems best to take these two questions as being in synonymous parallelism, where one father parallels one God. There's a kind of symmetry between this major section and the first in that both talk about God being Israel's father. Again, we could go back to chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, If I am a father, where is my honor? Now, uh, the older commentator, Kyle, points out that Malachi clearly differentiates between Jacob and Esau. But if the fatherhood of Abraham was in view, this would not rule out Esau since he was grandfather to both. The commentator Verhoff argues that God being the father is in view since there will be a later antithetical parallel to the daughter of a foreign god. So it's best to see God as being the father here. Uh, The point stresses the unity of the people of Israel who are bound together to God by the covenant of their ancestors. This means that create in did not one God create us refers to the creation of the nation, not God's creation in Genesis 1.1. The point is not the universal brotherhood of all men, but instead the national brotherhood of Israel. It can't be that Malachi is stressing unity with all human beings because, well, in the next verse, he goes on to condemn people for marrying the daughters of a foreign god. So clearly Malachi's thinking is not that all human beings are in the same category, although there are ways in which we could affirm that. Instead, the emphasis is on the corporate solidarity of the people of Israel. Now, as a side note, it's interesting to notice that Malachi uses the first-person plural for the verb I've translated, acting treacherously. Uh, This is the easiest way to take the Hebrew, but it means Malachi is saying, why are we acting treacherously? The Septuagint, the Greek translation, actually changes this to a second-person plural. Why are you all acting treacherously? Kind of to get Malachi off the hook. However, there's no good reason to amend the Hebrew text as we have it, and the result is that Malachi does include himself, and and this fits really well with what we've been talking about, the unity of the nation. Malachi personally was not perpetrating these crimes, but he includes himself. He's affected by it. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the author himself did these things. The text will go on to describe how certain people will be cut off and that God is keeping tabs on who's righteous and who isn't, and he's writing it all down in his book. So there's this balance seen in Malachi between individual and corporate action. So what is it that has been done that could be so serious as to profane the covenant and then, in verse 11, profane the sanctuary, or literally profane the holiness of Yahweh? Well, it's what we might think of as a very private and individual matter. It's the marriage choice, marrying the daughter of a foreign god. This is why he says it's an abomination done in Israel. That expression is actually an allusion to Deuteronomy 17, verse 4, 
which talks about what should happen if someone worships another god. Uh, The matter is to be searched out. And uh, if this abomination has been done in Israel, the person would be stoned with stones. The same thing is happening here. The people were not being exclusive in their devotion to Yahweh. Instead, they were marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, some have taken this as a figurative expression. After all, very often in the prophets, Hosea comes immediately to mind, worshiping pagan deities is portrayed as spiritual adultery. Such could be the case here, and would be all the more likely if weeping over the altar is a reference to some kind of pagan ritual. However, I think it's best to see this as literal marriage. Uh, In support of this view, recall the same problem of ungodly marriage was around in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. Also, the text goes on to talk more clearly about divorcing the wife of your youth in verse 14. Of course, as could be expected, those who see this as figurative spiritual adultery can see verses 14 to 16 as being uh, in the same category. One observation that strongly goes against taking this as uh, adultery as idolatry is that everywhere, everywhere else that this idea occurs, Yahweh is the husband, not the wife. So, uh, since nothing precludes the problem being about literal marriage, and this is the easiest and most natural way to take the text, and that's a problem described in Ezra and Nehemiah, we take it as literal marriage. In this understanding, the daughter of a foreign god functions like expressions son of X to mean that a person is described by X. So, for example, a son of worthlessness in the Hebrew Bible is a worthless person. Here, the feminine is used because, well, they were marrying women who are described as belonging to this foreign deity. In other words, the serious problem that Malachi describes is marrying people outside the covenant, particularly those who worship another god. This behavior is explicitly warned against elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the New Testament. In passing, let me point out that this sin is so heinous because it would lead the people into idolatry. The fundamental premise is that uh, the woman was outside the faith of Israel. Uh, So these prohibitions, hear me, do not so much forbid interracial marriages, uh, but instead uh, being unequally yoked about marrying outside of faith in Yahweh. This is a strong admonition then to those who may be wondering about how seriously God takes being united marriage to an unbeliever. In Malachi's day, it's enough to profane the holiness of Yahweh. It results in this curse in verse 12. May Yahweh cut off the man who does this, the one witnessing and answering from the tents of Jacob, even the one who brings an offering to Yahweh Sabaoth. Just like with the priests, it doesn't matter if you have an offering in your hand. Sacrifices won't atone for this willful sin so long as it's persisted in. The one who does it will be cut off. This is actually a play on words since to make a covenant with someone is is actually cutting a covenant. So the person who has cut a covenant but breaks it will himself be cut, that is, cut off from the tents or the people of Jacob. Now, it's not entirely clear what this means. Uh, Suggestions range from excommunication to cutting off lineage, as in chapter 2, verse 3, premature death in some way, or even uh, eternal damnation. Whatever it is, is not good. The idea is that God is going to clean house and will not stand for this sort of behavior within his community.
This person is described with an obscure, difficult expression, uh, which I've translated as the one witnessing and answering. The Peshitta and Targum have it as son and grandson. Vulgate, Luther, and the King James actually have the master and pupil. So there's a, a wide variety of the ways interpreters throughout history have understood it. The way I have it, calling and answering uh, does require making a small change to the Masoretic text, uh, but this reading is attested to in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Greek Septuagint. This is a small technical matter. Uh, it would only mean that someone in the Masoretic Hebrew tradition confused a Dalit for a Resh. In English, this would be like confusing a lowercase a and O with only a tiny little stroke to differentiate them. Uh, the result would be calling and answering, which is a figure of speech called a merism, in which two opposite things stand for the whole, kind of like the least and the greatest can mean everyone. Uh, something similar happens in the NIV translation, the man who does this, whoever he may be. That was a little bit complicated, but if you kind of fell off the wagon there, now's the time to get back on. The big idea of this section is that this applies to everyone who engages in marrying someone outside of the covenant. The people's sin only continues, though it is related, in verse 13. The second thing they do is not only marry unbelievers in defiance to the covenant, but then they bring their offerings to the Lord when he doesn't accept them. And then they have the audacity to complain about it. They weep and mourn. The commentator Virhoff suggests that they know God has not accepted his offerings because the crops continue to fail. And this seems likely to me. Malachi brings them back to the main point. You whine that God hasn't accepted your offerings. And why not? It's because the sin in your midst hasn't actually been dealt with. Of course, this is a sticky situation that the people have put themselves in. One wonders, reading Malachi, well, exactly what would repentance look like in this situation? They've put away their former wives, the wives of their youth, and they've married outside the covenant. So if they were to try to get right with God, what actually should they do? Malachi doesn't answer that question, but uh, we do read of an answer in, uh, in Nehemiah. If Malachi comes after this book, this knowledge would have been presumed. If Malachi came first, then the people would have to wait for the instructions given later, in which God says, put away your foreign wives and go back to the original marriage relationship. There are many important applications for us today. God takes our marriages seriously. Sadly, improper leadership can only exacerbate people's marital problems as they look on and see a lax attitude toward the things of God and the oversight. And so long as this situation is persisted in, being unconcerned for what God has said about marriage, if, if we continue coming to church, singing our songs, giving our tithes, it's not going to do any good. God won't accept them. He's not pleased with them. Now, the command in Ezra and Nehemiah to divorce, I think, was an exceptional uh, situation, not normative for us today. If you have made a promise in marriage, the New Testament is clear, like 1 Corinthians 7, you are to stay in that covenant, even if the person is an unbeliever. But the overall principle of sin canceling out our worship is one that we need to hear again and again. It'd be worth considering. Do you feel like God is distant? That he isn't answering your prayers? That worship is cold and ineffective? Well, one thing to consider, are you holding on to some sin? If so, don't make matters worse by crying about it like you don't know the reason why. The answer is obvious. Put away the sin. Get right with God. And then he'll accept the offering that's in your hand. 
Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.